Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, unlocking the power of Thinkorswim, the award-winning trading platforms loaded with features that let you dive deeper into the market. Visualize your trades in a new light on Thinkorswim Desktop with robust charting and analysis tools, all while you uncover new opportunities with up-to-the-minute market news and insights. Thinkorswim is available on desktop, web, and mobile to meet you where you are. It's built by the trading obsessed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This is Bloomberg Intelligence. Uber wants to be the Amazon of retail, of e-commerce. The Disney Plus service might actually end up benefiting Netflix. In-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. Capital return is the key story for the U.S. banks. The telcos naturally are moving into content distribution. I think it's a good move. Bloomberg Intelligence with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. Over the next hour, we're going to dig inside the big business stories impacting Wall Street and the global markets. Each and every week, we provide in-depth research and data on some of the 2,000 companies and 130 industries our analysts cover worldwide. Well, today, we're going to take a look at diamonds being your best friend and also someone buying you. Basically, Tiffany is an LVMH. Is it a good tie-up? What does it mean? Plus, we'll take a look at the credit implications for SoftBank increasing its investment in WeWork. But first, we want to take a look at Microsoft beating out Amazon to get a coveted cloud defense contract. For more, we want to bring in James Bach, Bloomberg Intelligence government analyst. Um, walk us through, first of all, what was at stake in this contract? Uh, for the most part, it was going to be a statement on where the federal government was going uh, with cloud. And it was either, on one hand, are they going to stick with Amazon, which, is, which was the provider for the CIA's cloud infrastructure, or were they going to try to help um, kind of breathe life into a more vibrant landscape of cloud providers. Uh, Microsoft winning this is now sort of a, an indication that the government is looking, you know, at everybody uh, to potentially be uh, a part of their federal IT modernization plans moving forward. So it's a pretty big uh, statement on that front. Plus, it kind of is a you know another validation that Microsoft is definitely uh, sort of gaining on Amazon in the cloud market. So James, how much of a surprise was this? I guess when it was first reported. I was saying, wow, it's not. It seems pretty rare that a big contract or that a big player like Amazon uh, would get flipped. Well, yeah, it's uh, kind of from the outside looking in, or just kind of looking at the uh, industry and looking at the size of Amazon's cloud infrastructure offering um, and kind of the revenue they drive off of it. It can look striking, uh, kind of at first blush, but um, we've been kind of maintaining throughout this whole process, which has been about two years now, uh, that Microsoft was uh, certainly a formidable competitor. Uh, with a uh, cloud offering that could rival that of Amazon's, in addition to some capabilities they had beyond just the offering, which was, you know, you look in the historical uh, kind of IT, I would say, archaeology of the uh, federal government. Microsoft has been embedded in that for a long time through operating systems, uh, through some of their software, 
So they certainly understand kind of what the IT architecture is of the federal government, whereas Amazon is relatively new on the enterprise scene. Um, so it, it makes sense that Microsoft definitely had some advantages in this competition and shouldn't necessarily be so striking that they did win. So there was some rhetoric because Amazon also indirectly kind of owns the Washington Post. And really, it's just (laughs) Jeff Bezos. But of course, on the street, there was lots of speculation that the government didn't want to go with Amazon because President Trump doesn't like the Washington Post headlines and articles. Is that all like us making stuff up because it's gossipy and fun? Like, what's the real fun? What's the real story? Um, I would stick to, uh, I wouldn't want to allege anything, and I wouldn't want to say that this was the uh, result of bad blood between Trump and uh, Jeff Bezos. I think that, uh, you know, Microsoft is definitely a competitor that had uh, the capabilities to win this uh, without any of that kind of stuff. Um, And you saw this week the uh, DOD CIO, uh, uh, Dana Deasy, defended the whole process. Um, I think for the most part, There were a lot of efforts to try to shield this from any kind of undue influence outside of what is the traditional process for procuring uh, technology uh, in the federal government. So, uh, yeah, the the Trump storyline, that kind of spied story, uh, probably wasn't what ended up uh, handing this award to Microsoft. Hey, James, sometimes we see with some of these tech companies, with their employees, they don't like to do business sometimes with certain parts of the U.S. government. I'm thinking about the Department of Defense, maybe CIA, things like that. Was there any pushback from employees for these mm, companies as it relates to this contract? There, there were some stories about maybe some employees at Microsoft not being uh, you know, too keen on working with the Department of Defense. But uh, we, Microsoft really isn't the same as Google when it comes to working with the government. They've been doing it for decades, and it's hard to imagine uh, Microsoft in any way being you know, this, this whole contract or this program being upended by any kind of uh, employee insurrection or anything like that. Uh, Microsoft is pretty comfortable working with the DOD and the military and uh, the intel agencies. So once again, it's hard to imagine that that would have any impact on this. Can you give a Luddite like me the, any ideas to like what this kind of cloud contract actually means? How long is it for? The money behind it? What they actually do? So yeah, so this is the uh, the name of the program is the Joint Enterprise Defense Infrastructure uh, Jedi for short. Uh, well, I was contract. like, that's a really horrible name, <laughs> yes. but Jedi's cool. That's a cool acronym, <laughs> right? Um, and it's essentially a uh, cloud uh, infrastructure. So you talk about the computing power, the network, the storage, and kind of a op- uh, platform for application development, cloud based, of course, uh, for the, uh, the the Department of Defense to sort of tap into commercial industry to help build next generation applications that can leverage commercial investment in uh, you know, AI, machine learning, data analytics. So that's kind of what they were trying to set up. Uh, at the same time, trying to perhaps bring a little more structure to what has become a pretty complex web of uh, IT architectures that are kind of littering the, uh, the, the scene for the DOD. You know, there's data centers, there's on-premises uh, old legacy equipment, there's, uh, there's private clouds, there's uh, even some commercial clouds being used. This is kind of an effort to standardize all of that and give the uh, DOD a uh, platform to uh, you know, leverage cloud, which you know, some in industry have said DOD is slow to move to cloud. Um, some of those reasons are justified. There's security issues, there's uh, control issues over the data. So uh, that's mainly what this is trying to achieve. All right, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate your time. Bloomberg Intelligence Analyst James Bach.
So you just heard about Microsoft beating out Amazon for this big cloud contract, Jedi. I like that. Yes. So what is behind it? What is actually, how are they competing with each other in the cloud? For more, we're joined by Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Software Analyst Anurag Rana. First of all, this kind of cloud is different than other kinds of cloud, right? It's just the basic infrastructure that um, you, know, you build things upon. And the two biggest providers of that are Amazon and Microsoft. All right, so this business, it's basically, if I'm a company, I don't need to have the servers and stuff and maintain all that stuff. I can kind of say, hey, Amazon or Microsoft, you guys store all my data? Yeah, you're just renting out somebody else's computers to do your stuff. I mean, and you are storing your information there. It's just using software. Uh, you're just, you know, demarcating it as uh, somebody else's space. Now, Amazon has the lead here, right? For oh, sure. absolutely. So um, how fast can Microsoft actually grow? Do they wind up overtaking Amazon at any point? How does that work? See, again, it's, you know, about four or five years ago, the difference between them was one is to 20. That's the kind of difference it was. Right now, it's about one is to four, according to some data that we have from IDC. But, you know, Amazon has the first mover advantage, but Microsoft has a couple of things that's going uh, with them. First, a number of verticals are specifically not wanting to work with Amazon. Retail being the biggest one of them. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it is actually very true that if, you know, if you most of those retailers would want to go somewhere else. So Microsoft is a very good second option. The second big thing is if you are a legacy enterprise, if you are a company that's been spending money over the last 15, 20 years on technology, somewhere or the other on your current internal infrastructure, you're using Microsoft products. Makes it much easier for you to move those workloads and data into Microsoft's cloud because the source code of those two products are the same. And that Microsoft's biggest pitch is what we call a hybrid cloud strategy where you can leave some of that information on your own data centers and some of it in Microsoft's data center, depending on hmm. you know what the use case is. And that's where that's why Microsoft's growth rates are a little bit better right now than, than Amazon. But you know, there's a big difference in size as well. So Anurag, let's just step back a little bit. Give us a size of the or a sense of the size of the cloud business. We we hear it just mentioned so often. I want to get a sense of how big it is, how fast it's growing, and and kind of who are the big players. Yeah. So you know when we when when we generically talk about cloud, there is a there's a mix of applications and infrastructure in there. But if we just look at an infrastructure business, it's you know no more than you know you could say fifty somewhere between fifty to hundred billion dollars. And frankly, the IT spending is like one and a half trillion or so. Right. So, you know, maybe oh, you really wow. look okay. at the large size of the overall market, this is nothing. And we're just starting the, to see the beginning of the shift to move into the cloud. So one of the things that we wrote about recently was like people are increasingly or, you know, I think, you know, unfairly obsessing over these growth rates. The market size is so large that if for both of these vendors, there is a long runway to go, uh, no matter, you know, which way you slice and dice it. What's the barrier to entry? Uh, billions of dollars of um, you know data centers that you have to create. Um, somebody has to create in order to match these. So it's high. Very high. It's one of the the highest barriers to entry businesses right now. All right. All right. So we've got Amazon. We've got uh, Microsoft. Google talks about it as well, and they've got deep pockets. How did where they fit in? So they have a very good cloud offering. So they, you know, just because of the search business, they have to have a very global, you know, footprint of very, you know, high sophisticated data centers, and they have been trying to rent that out as well. But just like Amazon, Google doesn't have an enterprise presence in the legacy world just because they never sold any software products to these companies, you know, 15, 20 years ago. And they are struggling to figure out how do they sell into the enterprise. So they just hired somebody uh, from Oracle who was Oracle's, you know, top um, uh, technology person to be the CEO of Google Cloud. And he's mm -hmm. been 
you know, buying companies, hiring very aggressively and targeting enterprises. So they are going to be, I think, you know, going to be one of the more formidable competitors in cloud over the next few years. What about IBM? IBM has also a public cloud offering or a basic infrastructure for, uh, offering, but, you know, they pivoted more towards customized cloud or somebody wanting to do things more on a, as I said, on a hybrid cloud basis. Mm -hmm. And that's why they bought Red Hat, where they can give some customized work because, you know, you really don't want to compete with Amazon on pricing. So you want to sell a different mm -hmm. flavor of that cloud, which is a little more customized and you can charge more for it. That's where I wanted to go because one of the things I've, when I read your research about the cloud, I've, one thing that struck me is it's really competitive on price and they're constantly cutting price. How do they do that and still grow the business? It's it's only for the basic services, Paul. So what, what typically it is, as you get more and more data centers, you have economies of scale and you're able to reduce prices and that actually prevents others from coming in. And as you get more users, you know, it's the per unit cost keeps on decreasing. But real value is all more on the second layer of it, what we call platform services, where you have databases, security, identity, and access management. That's where you charge more, and that's where you make the margins. And uh, you know that's where all of these companies are also targeting more services. What about profitability? So the the you know the, the, this is a very profitable profitable business once you get up to scale. So currently, a lot of these companies are in the investing phase. But as you get up to speed, uh, up to you know maturity, I think this is going to be one of the more profitable technology businesses that we have. Give us a sense. Well, we know it from Amazon because there's an Amazon. Their core business was you know not really profitable, the core retail business. But once they started ramping up the the Amazon mm -hmm. Web Services, investors were like, whoa, we got some profits here. Yeah. Profits? What what's this? What's Amazon? this exactly? No. Give us a sense of like who the customers are, like uh, what are the big customer verticals for cloud compute, computing companies? So the first and the most uh, you know, obvious ones are the cloud-born companies. Everybody from Snapchat, Uber, Lyft, uh, uh, you know, uh, the, the companies that were born in the last 10, 15 years where the entire infrastructure is built on somebody else's one. The second big one is legacy enterprises. So let's say a bank like JP Morgan might decide they're going to create a new application, that new workload or that new process then they, you know, they go out and build on uh, Amazon Web Services or another mm -hmm. uh, offering. So those are the two basic ones that I would say right now. What are the chances, though, that like a big bank, for example, winds up doing everything in-house instead, like building up their own department so they don't have to go farm it out to an Amazon Web Service? They will do a little bit of both, which is why I said that private or hybrid cloud strategy for a lot of the big banks with a lot of money. You have to have a lot of money to do this. Um, but, you know, frankly, why do you want to be in the basic computing business? It's like a commodity or a utility. You just want to rent it from outside. If you mm. really want to do something more sophisticated, then you can buy and, you know, develop another another network that is, you know, slightly different than the basic one. Anurag Rana, thank you so much. Anurag covers all things tech, software, all that crazy stuff that comes out of Silicon Valley. Anurag Rana is our expert. Thanks so much. We now want to turn to the glittering potential merger of LVMH and Tiffany's. It's a deal that would create a global jewelry leader. Want to break it down with Bloomberg Intelligence senior luxury analyst Deborah Aiken. So, Deborah, what would this deal actually look like? So um, I think it would be really interesting for both parties, actually. If we look at LVMH as the global leader in luxury goods, um, the actual, uh, if we think about jewellery and watches as part of their overall portfolio right now, it's less than 10% of sales. And more than that, LVMH being the stalwart that it is, it's generally a number two, number one or number two in the sector in where it operates. And for jewellery, it's really a lower number three right now behind uh, Richemont and Tiffany.
So can you give me some sense for LVMH, like, is this a big deal for them? Uh, how do they look at something like Tiffany's? Like, I feel like here in the U.S., it's like, oh, it, it, it's a high-end brand, but it's not like a Cartier, for example. Um, but what's it look? What's it seen like in Europe? So I think for LVMH, Tiffany would offer an entry point. So uh, LVMH owns Bulgari, much higher end in terms of entry price point. So Tiffany offers the um, o- opens the market for LVMH and jewelry to the younger consumer. Um, and how is Tiffany perceived in Europe? I think as a gifting product, so that would also help LVMH. Um, a younger product to start, but also there are some very high-end products within Tiffany, and I think that possibly LVMH could help to market that more mm. given its depth and breadth. Do we learn anything about Uber luxury from LVMH by doing this? Like, is that part of the segment uh, sort of declining? So they need to reach more of a middle market. They need to reach younger consumers. Or is this just like a smart, let's just go and expand brands? I think it could be beneficial both at the starter point, the younger consumer, and also more uh, with the classical older consumer too. Um, when I think about the issue with Tiffany, there are 300 stores and 7% or about 300 stores and 7% penetration on e-commerce. So we can get much wider and stronger than that under LVMH ownership. And in terms of, you know, how big is this deal for LVMH? Um, it really is sizable. It would be its largest deal. We know that it has a very strong balance sheet. It can easily absorb this price tag of 14 and a half billion which is so far assigned to the deal with the first offer um but what it could actually do is to um you know really push in the way that when we think about what else it acquiring it paid 23 times for bulgari uh, in 2011 to really start off this division. Hmm. And from there, it's growing it very strongly and it's doing very well across the board. So it could work very well. Where's the growth and the operating margin growth when it comes to luxury jewelry? If we take watches, because we have a very strong data on a monthly basis from Swiss Watch Federation on exports, the highest growth and the uh, most defensive play has been has been in those watches on a monthly basis over 3,000 Swiss francs. Wow. And in fact, you can look at average prices, eight to 9,000 Swiss francs, and that is where the strongest growth is, and beyond that, $20,000 plus. Wow. So that's where the growth <laughs> is. Now, watches over the last couple of years, because they've been highly exposed to uh, Hong Kong, and prior to that to uh, China with the clampdown on gifting a few years ago, they've had a little bit of a, um, a rough ride, let's say, But from the jewellery side, because it's less logo on there and less visible, um, that that has maintained a growth very high single digit versus watches mid single digit. So how does this wind up then uh, playing out? Because I was hearing two narratives uh, over the week. One is that the bid is too low. Tiffany's going to want and need uh, a higher bid and there could be competitors getting in. But the other narrative is like, why uh, would you want, why would LVMH come in now and pay this money to do it when if they just waited and sales sort of continued to roll over in Tiffany's, they could actually get a better price? Well, firstly, I think it's about making sure that you maintain the brand, because if a brand falls away too far, it can take several years to help the brand to recover. And there's such a competitive marketplace at the base of where Tiffany's product lies, with so many new competitors, individual competitors seeking, uh, you know, 
authentic individual brand alignment, personalization, intimacy, that it's about managing that bottom end. And so it's, it's saving that bottom end in a way. Um, when we think about you know, where Tiffany has been, just prior to this deal, Tiffany shares are actually down 3% over five years versus if I look at what's happened with LVMH standalone, it's up 214% as compared. Wow. So it can step in now, it can step in any time, and it can, I, I think it can really make it work. Our thanks to Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Luxury Analyst Deborah Aiken. Well, SoftBank ups its WeWork bet by another $9.6 billion. The question is, what does it mean for SoftBank's balance sheet? To get some answers, we welcome Bloomberg Intelligence Analyst Steve Flynn. Steve, thanks so much for joining us here. So give us a sense of how deep uh, we have SoftBank into WeWork right now. Yeah, so SoftBank's total investment is now almost $19 billion, um, given the most recent announcements to provide purchase additional equity, invest some equity into WeWork, and also lend money to WeWork. Um, the question we often get is, you know, can they afford it? Well, yes, SoftBank can. Uh, the company has a lot of liquidity. Uh, the pro forma cash balance is about $13 billion. That's even after subtracting the incremental $9.6 billion WeWork pledge. Um, yet investors should also be aware that SoftBank has very large investment commitments outstanding. While, again, the cash balance is large, the commitments are even larger. SoftBank has pledged about $54 billion of investments, uh, investment commitments, including $13.5 billion remaining on the original SoftBank Vision Fund and another $38 billion for the new and even larger SoftBank Vision Fund, too. So I'm glad you brought that up because what I think I know I'm unclear about is what part of the WeWork investment comes from the Vision Fund, what part of it comes from SoftBank. And I know that they all might wind up in the same place, but they're basically different. Like SoftBank has shareholders. The Vision Fund has Saudi Arabia. <laughs> yeah, that is correct. So um, what happens is <laughs> it's pretty complex. So sometimes uh, the SoftBank Vision Fund will make investments directly. Uh, sometimes SoftBank um, Group Corp will uh, make investments and then at a later date send all or some of those investments over to the Vision Fund as part of their own commitments to the Vision Fund. And on certain occasions, they will just uh, keep investments on their own balance sheet. Um, and, and it depends. There's a lot of companies they purchase again and then shift those investments over to the Vision Fund. Um, you know, it's weird. Even when they purchased Arm in the UK several years ago, they ended up moving about 25% of their stake in Arm uh, to the Vision Fund for a value of about $8 billion. So they've done a variety of different things. Uh, you definitely have to keep close track of the balance sheet, figuring out what is held by uh, the parent company and what is held by the Vision Fund. So, Steve, I know you talk to institutional fixed income investors all day. Are they feeling like Gee, SoftBank here, as it relates to WeWorks, throwing good money after bad? I'm um, sure there is a concern um, that, you know, the, amount of, the original investment in WeWork was at uh, valuation levels that are significantly, significantly higher uh, than the latest investment round. Um, that is a concern of theirs. Another concern of theirs is just the sheer size of SoftBank's debt load. It's massive, and it is a junk-rated company. It's the largest uh, junk-rated um, debt obligation out there. So that um, concerns investors. Yet, I would point out that um, SoftBank owns some very, very large stakes 
and publicly traded companies, including, uh, most importantly, its 26% stake in Alibaba, which is worth about $118 billion, and a 66% stake in its Japanese communications business, which is worth about $45 billion. Um, So those are um, two pillars of support uh, for the SoftBank debt load. So don't we have, like, some major conflict of interests here when you have these, like, competing investments in different funds, even though you might have the money, it's geared towards one fund versus overall SoftBank. Like, if you're a SoftBank shareholder, you lose, right? If you're the Vision Fund, you win. I mean, isn't this weird? You know, there's been a lot written about the checks and balances um, of the investment um, committee. The SoftBank Vision Fund does have an investment committee. Investments have to be approved by uh, the committee, even if they are coming from the parent company. so there, there should yep. be some sort of arm's length uh, agreement there. So another thing as it relates to SoftBank, another issue is SoftBank owns about 84% of Sprint, which is trying to merge with T-Mobile forever, it seems like. But um, so now the question is, how, you know, what happens if T-Mobile and, you, and, and Sprint deal fails? What does that mean for SoftBank? Uh, sure, that could be very negative for SoftBank if the Sprint deal fails. Um, on the positive side, if it did go through, um, about $38 billion of Sprint debt, which is on SoftBank's consolidated balance sheet, would go away and shrink the size of that massive debt load. And then SoftBank would retain a 27% stake in the merged T-Mobile Sprint, which, you know, would be a very well-positioned national wireless provider. And SoftBank could theoretically, you know, sell down that stake over time to help meet all the investment commitments uh, that we talked about earlier. But if the deal fails, that would be bad news for SoftBank. So instead of removing debt from the balance sheet, SoftBank could have to turn around and invest another maybe 3 to $5 billion into Sprint to help keep it afloat. Yeah, I'm just glad I'm not an analyst covering SoftBank here. It's just way too complicated given all their ownership stakes and you know all the things that they have pending to invest in. So, uh, But fortunately, we have Steve Flynn who does it for us. He's going to read the documents. Yeah, he's going to read yeah. it. He reads the documents for us. He, does, he covers all things credit for uh, Bloomberg Intelligence on the tech media telecom space. Steve, thanks so much. The question on many people's minds is, is Airbus actually going to win on the Boeing 730 MAX issues? The answer is yes, and the answer is no. Joining us now is Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Aerospace Analyst George Ferguson. So the yes part was that they scored this really great deal with Indigo, which is India's low-budget airline carrier. How big is this deal? I mean, look, 300 airplane orders is a great order, and so I think... Uh, you know, f- f- uh, on the face of it, I think it looks pretty good. But I would say um, it wasn't a conquest. Indigo was already flying uh, Airbus A320s. And, you know, when we look at this order, we see a late-in-the-year order, which is kind of typical for Airbus when, they, when they've when they had a hard time getting orders during the year. They don't like to go into year-end um, with a less-than-one-time book-to-bill, uh, and they're they're – probably on track to do that. So they, I think they get ready to give a bunch of deals. And I think Indigo probably came in and took a pretty decent deal. And when we look at it, Indigo already had about 300 airplanes on order from Airbus A320s. And so we think that this, this order uh, are airplanes that they'll probably uh, have delivered to them, have delivered to Indigo over the next decade. So again, it kind of looks like Airbus is fishing for orders here to try to finish the year strong and on the um, on the order flow uh, standpoint. But I, I wouldn't call this a super high quality uh, win. 
So, George, give us a sense of how the demand is from the airlines globally for aircraft. Yeah, so this year's been very weak for um, for orders for both Boeing and Airbus. You know, as we went into the year, we were concerned that it would be it would be a weak year. We've seen profitability at the airlines uh, down year over year. Uh, we see you know yields are pretty challenged. Yields are the price paid per mile flown by a um, by a customer. So yields have been down, and that's hurt profitability. And we think airlines are sort of are, are rethinking how many airplanes they need a lot of them have airplanes on order already um, so we were looking for a weak year as it was now when the Boeing max got grounded I think we you know we all thought that probably means that Boeing isn't going to get a lot of uh, orders this year either nobody wants to sort of buy an airplane that uh, isn't flying yet we figured the customers would hold off until the airplane was back in the air but we really haven't seen Airbus uh, capitalize on that grounding or or grab uh, orders either and we think that you know both carriers Sorry, both manufacturers will finish the year probably at a less than one-time book-to-bill, which means they haven't pulled in as many orders as airplanes they've shipped, and so their backlogs are starting to, starting to dwindle. So, does that is that the trough though? Uh, well, you know, so what we've seen around the world right now is that. Um, Almost all regions are seeing lower airline profitability except for the U.S. and uh, Latin America. And so, and this is with the backdrop of the Boeing Max being grounded and less less capacity in the marketplace than would have occurred, you know, had the, had the Max not been grounded. And so, as we think about going into year end, um, and having the MAX approved by the probably the FAA first here at sort of year-end or early in the new year, and then we think approved by a, a number of regulators around the world to, to let it fly globally again uh, into 2020, we see a lot more airplanes coming out of this grounding status. Boeing, Boeing has built a bunch of them to deliver to customers as soon as their, uh, the grounding is lifted. And so um, we see a lot of capacity coming in 2020, and we see that against the backdrop of slowing global growth. So the long answer to your question is we think airline profitability is under pressure again in 2020, even more because a lot more capacity comes to the marketplace. So we think 2020, not not going to have a lot of orders either. Um, you know, look, there's a lot of airplanes in the world, uh, probably too many airplanes in the world. I think we've expanded pretty, pretty dramatically uh, on that front. And so we're not very positive on airline profit growth for the next couple of years. And therefore, we, I don't think this is the, the trough. I think there's further down to go. All right. Thanks so much, George. Always good to catch up with you. Bloomberg yes, Intelligence you. Senior Aerospace Analyst, George Ferguson. I also caught up with him like last week in Vegas. Ah, By the way, apparently Vegas, there, was, there was a Vegas conference. <laughs> yeah, oh, there always is. <laughs> That's this week's edition of Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies in 130 industries. And remember, you can access Bloomberg Intelligence through BI Go on the terminal. I'm Alex Steele. And I'm Paul Sweeney. And this is Bloomberg. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. 
title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.